welcome to the Journal of Neurosurgical Anesthesiology podcast. My name is Dr. Lauren Buell, and I'm an attending neuroanesthesiologist and associate program director of the anesthesiology residency at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston. On behalf of the Trainee Engagement Committee at SNAC, I'll be presenting a JNA article from 2019 entitled Perceived Benefits and Barriers to a Career in Neuroanesthesiology, a Pilot Survey of Anesthesiology Clinicians by Dr. Shobana Rajan and colleagues. This podcast was written and produced in conjunction with Dr. Christopher Koo at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. Ever since the 1990s were dubbed the Decade of the Brain by then-U.S. President George H.W. Bush, basic neuroscience has enjoyed an exponential rate of growth as advances in technology and research have given us more insight and opportunities to treat what have historically been mystifying and oftentimes frustrating diseases. As is generally the case, clinical neuroscience practice has grown somewhat more slowly, but SNAC has been at the forefront of bridging the gap between the laboratory and the operating room and ICU. In this environment, it might seem like pursuing fellowship training in neuroanesthesiology would be an attractive option for anesthesiology residents, but sadly, this has not been the case. Despite evidence that our neurosurgical colleagues prefer to work with fellowship-trained neuroanesthesiologists, Applications for neuroanesthesiology fellowships have lagged far behind those for more popular subspecialties like cardiac anesthesiology and critical care medicine. In 2017, when this survey was conducted by Dr. Rajan and colleagues, there was an active debate within SNAC that continues to this day regarding how to attract more trainees into careers in neuroanesthesiology. And the International Council on Perioperative Neuroscience Training, or ICPNT, was preparing to accredit its pilot group of neuroanesthesiology fellowship programs. The hope was that accreditation would serve not only to improve the quality of neuroanesthesiology fellowship education by ensuring that programs follow internationally endorsed professional standards, but also to recruit more trainees to careers in neuroanesthesiology. At the time, opinions were fairly divided as to whether accreditation by ICPNT or even the ACGME would help with this recruitment goal. And with this backdrop, the study by Dr. Rajan and colleagues shed some light onto the thoughts of anesthesiology trainees and faculty members. In this podcast, we'll discuss the survey's findings with regard to the perceived motivation and barriers for trainees to pursue careers in neuroanesthesiology, and how we, as practicing neuroanesthesiologists, might make the benefits of fellowship training more evident and tangible. Let's start with the basics. The survey by Dr. Rajan and colleagues asked anesthesiology attendings and trainees, including fellows, about their perceptions regarding the accreditation of neuroanesthesiology fellowship programs, barriers to pursuing fellowship training, and what SNAC might do to increase interest in neuroanesthesiology among trainees. It was performed over a two-month period from January to February in 2017. As with any survey, sampling is critical. Given the overall goal of increasing interest in careers in neuroanesthesiology, it was important to sample both those with a current interest in neuroanesthesiology to see what led them to this career path, and those not currently working in neuroanesthesiology to see what might have dissuaded them or attracted them. To reach the former group, the authors sent the survey to all email addresses in the SNAC database. To reach the latter group, they also sent the survey to members of the Society for Education and Anesthesia, and the Society of Academic Associations of Anesthesiology and Perioperative Medicine, and encouraged SNAC leaders to disseminate the survey within their own departments. Given the strategy, it's impossible to know how many people ultimately received the survey, but there were 463 respondents. Of these, 67% were attending physicians, 25% were residents, 
6% were fellows, and 2% were unspecified. In addition, 84% of respondents were from the United States, making it difficult to extrapolate the results to international trainees. Despite the author's efforts to reach both those who were actively involved in neuroanesthesiology and those who were not, 37% of the attending respondents were neuroanesthesia fellowship trained, and 44% of the fellow respondents were either currently undergoing or had completed a neuroanesthesia fellowship. Both of these numbers are already substantially higher than the general population of anesthesiologists, but when you consider respondents who may have active careers in neuroanesthesiology despite not being fellowship trained, the sample becomes even more skewed. In future surveys, it would be enlightening to ask a few more demographic questions regarding the respondent's current level of involvement in neuroanesthesiology and to analyze the data along those lines in order to avoid making decisions about outreach and curriculum development projects from the confines of a snack echo chamber. On the resident side, 70% of the 116 respondents had completed a neuroanesthesiology rotation at the time of the survey, and 10% intended to pursue a fellowship in neuroanesthesiology. Again, though, it would have been informative to ask a few more demographic details about these residents and the training programs they came from, including what kind of exposure to neurosurgical cases was available, and whether they had a neuroanesthesiology fellowship program at their institution. Sampling issues aside, let's move on to the results. The question of neuroanesthesiology fellowship accreditation loomed large in 2017 at the time of this survey, both whether it was necessary to ensure the quality and consistency of fellowship training programs and whether it would help in recruiting more applicants. There were also questions of whether the actual accrediting body, namely the ICPNT or ACGME, would be important. For a variety of reasons, it was ultimately decided that any accreditation would occur through the ICPNT, but the questions of training quality and recruitment remain open. A majority of survey respondents felt that neuroanesthesiology fellowships should be accredited, including 64% of attendings, 56% of fellows, and 55% of residents. But a similar majority of respondents felt that formal fellowship guidelines would be adequate in lieu of accreditation including 65% of attendings and 55% of fellows. In fact, at my own institution, we felt confident that with the superb educational resources and fellowship guidelines published by SNAC, we will be able to provide an outstanding expert-endorsed fellowship education without the bureaucratic workload that often comes with accreditation. And to date, we have not pursued ICPNT accreditation. As someone who serves on her hospital's graduate medical education committee, I can assure you that the efforts involved with accreditation, at least for the ACGME, are substantial to say the least. Now that ICPNT accreditation has been underway for several years, it would be interesting to study whether programs that chose to pursue accreditation saw an increase in their rate of applications or whether they received a larger proportion of applications than programs like mine that chose not to pursue accreditation. With regard to recruitment, only 36% of resident respondents thought accreditation would make them more likely to pursue subspecialty training in neuroanesthesiology. And among the overall group of respondents, very few thought accreditation would increase applications to neuroanesthesiology fellowships by a lot, including just 15% of attendings, 13% of fellows, and 10% of residents. So if accreditation isn't the answer to more robust recruitment, what is? While it's hard to know for sure, it's possible that current perceptions of neuroanesthetic care itself might be the issue. For instance, a majority of respondents felt that neuroanesthesiology fellowship training was not necessary even for complex neurosurgical cases, including 51% of attendings, 52% of fellows, and 73% of residents. 
While these results speak highly of neuroanesthesiology training during residency, much of which has been greatly enhanced by snack resources, my personal experience has been that I receive a flurry of questions via email and text the night before when a non-neuroanesthesia colleague is assigned to care for a complex neurosurgical case, just as I would do if I were assigned to care for a complex obstetric case. The second most cited factor contributing to the low number of neuroanesthesiology fellowship applications was the lack of a unique skill set provided by fellowship training. This impression is understandable given that other fellowships can readily point to a skill such as echocardiography for cardiac anesthesiology or complex nerve blocks for regional anesthesiology that will presumably make their fellows more marketable among the general population of anesthesiology job applicants. In this regard, neuroanesthesiology is more similar to obstetric or pediatric anesthesiology, where it's not the skill set per se, but the patient population that requires unique expertise. Interestingly, when asked specifically about some of the technical skills fellowship training in neuroanesthesiology does provide, namely neuromonitoring and transcranial ultrasonography, only about one quarter to one third of respondents felt that more experience in these would increase interest in fellowship training. Respondents were much more optimistic about increasing opportunities for research and neurocritical care exposure as possible ways to boost fellowship recruitment. Generally speaking, we know a lot about why medical students choose the subspecialties they choose, but remarkably little about why residents choose to pursue subspecialty fellowship training. This study by Rajan and colleagues attempted to fill that knowledge gap, at least for neuroanesthesiology, and found that the most common reason for choosing fellowship training was, of course, interest in the subspecialty. But career advancement and acquisition of a unique skill set followed close behind among faculty and fellow respondents. These findings suggest a number of possibilities for fellowship programs to increase their applicant pool through more dynamic teaching methods, highlighting the unique tangible skill sets such as neuromonitoring and transcranial ultrasonography that are part of neuroanesthesiology, and better advertising of the unique career opportunities that are available in our field compared to more crowded fields such as cardiac anesthesiology. But with all our efforts, we have to remember that the clock is working against us. Fellowship applications are typically submitted midway through the CA2 year, and many of my residents are already set on a fellowship pathway before they even start residency. So it makes the most sense for us to target our efforts at interns and CA1s, and even senior medical students, if we want to engender the kind of interest that leads most people to pursue subspecialty fellowship training. Future studies in this area should focus on an improved sampling strategy. If our goal is to recruit more people to careers in neuroanesthesiology, our target audience should be those who are not currently pursuing careers in neuroanesthesiology, and they should form the bulk of our sample. I would also argue that more robust sampling of anesthesiology interns and CA1 residents would be helpful since they're the ones we might still have time to convince. Collecting more data about the respondents beyond just their level of training will not only create a richer data set, but also make it possible to do more informative statistical analysis and targeted interventions. Ultimately, it's often hard to make the leap from survey responses to effective interventions, and a qualitative approach using interviews and focus groups could be more fruitful. In the meantime, those of us who are practicing neuroanesthesiologists need to be better ambassadors, especially for our junior residents and senior medical students. We need to include them in our research efforts, utilize dynamic teaching methods, and do a better job of providing concrete examples of how our own fellowship training in neuroanesthesiology set us up for success both clinically and professionally. It's this kind of personal connection and storytelling that is often most persuasive for medical students, and I expect the same will be true for our residents.